the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and Benedict have come away. They're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajjano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Time-honoured Carrington Stakes will be 94 years old when the 2024 edition is run at Randwick on January 27. The race is named after Charles Carrington, who in the late 19th century served five years as the 16th Governor of New South Wales. The inaugural winner of the Carrington in 1930 was Pavilion, ridden by the legendary Morris McCartan, who in later years would become one of Australia's most successful trainers. Easily the most notable Carrington winner is the freakish Burnborough, who won the six furlong sprint in 1945, only one week after winning the Villiers at a mile. His amazing versatility was again on display the following year when he won the Doombin 10,000 and the Doombin Cup seven days apart. One wonderful old sprinter to make the race his own in the 1980s was At Sea, who won three Carringtons for Theo Green. Another high-profile winner of the sprint was Snippets in 1988. This brilliant horse had been the inaugural winner of the Magic Millions a year earlier and later in his career added three Group 1s to his CV. He later became a highly regarded sire and sire of brood mares. Snippets died at 17 years of age in 2002. When the Carrington Stakes comes around, you know there's a new year of Sydney racing underway. Saturday, January 27th for the Carrington Stakes. I was privileged to be a guest recently at the annual racing luncheon hosted by Mick Doyle at his famous seafood restaurant at Watson's Bay. Now that function brings together a cross-section of people known to Mick during his long involvement as an owner, a breeder, a punter and an AJC committeeman. In attendance, there were jockeys and trainers, past and present, former administrators, former stewards and members of the racing media. When I spotted Wayne Harris swapping yarns with old friends, it suddenly occurred to me that he was one of our very early podcast guests when this website began more than five years ago. By special request, we reposted that interview four years ago. Since then, Wayne has been dealing with ongoing health issues which have seriously impinged on his mobility. Most of these issues can be traced to the legacy of race falls. Nowadays, he has to contend with falls of a different kind. Old knee and ankle injuries have caused him to lose balance on several occasions at home, resulting in some nasty tumbles. Despite his difficulty in getting around, the toughest teak former champion jockey still meets his commitments on Sky Thoroughbred Central from the Kembla Grange race meetings. Let's find out how he's going and how he's managing the tough times. Wayne Harris, it's always a delight to welcome Good you morning, to champion. the podcast. How are you, my champion friend? Good, I'm all right, mate. Fine. They always say there's someone worse off than you. I don't want to be that bugger, I can tell you. No, you've always said that, Wayne, though, and it's it's been a great philosophy and a wonderful slant on life, and I think it's helped you to get through some of the dark days, hasn't it? Definitely has. My specialists, um, 
he um, he always says that my my sarcasm and my humour mm. appears to get me through, which it has pretty well all my life, especially the ugly uh, illnesses and injuries and terrible things. But I think it mm. um, it, charm, it cheers other people up too. I think. Oh, it does. Your sense of humour at times can be bizarre. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> Well, you underwent major surgery about four years ago to reposition spinal shunts, which had been inserted when you finished writing. Now, those shunts were necessary because a section of your spinal column had been crushed in accidents. Now, I recall you were using a walking stick, Wayne, for some time following that operation. I I was on a walking stick for probably first six or seven years that I retired, mm. and then uh, after another operation, I've been pretty well on the Canadian crutches for uh, 10 or more years, and mm. then uh, this year with um, extra falls, I had a knee that needed a reconstruction. I'd come out of having uh, the shunts replaced or repositioned in my spine, and my knee gave way, and I fell over and broke my ankle. Mm-hmm. And every fall I've had since, I've since done my shoulder, my rotator cuff, main muscle, main tendon. So my balance is just uh, terrible. And I've been told I've got to stick to the wheelchair. But mm-hmm. I try to get up and walk where I have to, but uh, my legs do a thing called hyperextend. They go back the wrong way. And it's just uh. like someone's smashing you in the knees or the back of the knees with, um, mm-hmm. with a sledgehammer. So, yeah, it's not a day goes by that I, I'm not in pain and, Worst thing's probably not sleeping, John. I don't get any sleep of a night. I'm, mm. I'm uh, getting through on, on on the minimum, and as soon as I move or or anything, and the pain shuts. Anyone that's had a bad back would know what I'm talking about, and mm. I can't get back to sleep. So I'm watching a lot of old movies on TV through the night. <laughs> You're back to Casablanca, back Pretty to the well. yeah, back to the classics. Wayne, your much respected surgeon and your good friend, Doctor Rooney is reluctant to perform any surgery, isn't he, on your yeah, trifecta of trauma, knee, ankle and shoulder? He said, Wayne, what's the bloody importance in doing it? You're only going to fall over and break them again. I'm going to yeah. have to operate. And he's called me in a few times with a few ideas, and as soon as he looks at me, he's going. So yeah. um, I'm going to fall over and hurt my shoulder again, trying to break falls. Um, the knee's just a total mess. It's twice the size of my other one, and it's like a horse. I've gone in the other knee now, trying to save the bad one, and yeah. the ankle trying to carry me. Um, yeah, so it's not in a real good position to be in, John. Mm. You know, you always look composed and confident when you do your mounting yard mail segments from Kembla Grange. I know you put a lot of time into the form in the days leading up to those meetings, so in most cases you've pretty well settled on a selection before you get to the track. Yes, I watch a lot of videos and I try to put my own mind in people get in your ear and start tipping you something or why this was unlucky last start and then you have owners walk past you and abuse you because you put their horse in and you get owners walk past you and abuse you because you haven't put their horse in and it's, uh, it's, it's a thankless sort of job but you know I, I do do a bit of homework it's not just potluck and um, very rarely I, I, unless I see a horse that's parading uh, better than I expected to I, I wouldn't change. No, no, exactly. You've become very good friends with some of your co-hosts. You've been working lately with popular race caller Anthony Manton and you've worked many times there in the mounting enclosure at Kembla with a very slick professional in Jason Witham. 
He's a champion, Jace. He, um, I think when he first started to work with me, he was a bit worried about my humour and how close to the edge I'd go. But <laughs> he lets me go now. And I give a bit of a laugh out of Jason too. But he's the loveliest man, and I love working with him. Yeah, great. It's not widely known, Wayne, that you're living in Wollongong. You have for some time now. So Kembla's on your doorstep. It is, yeah. I've been, uh, well, I was doing all the Kembla meetings and there was other people assigned to every other track around the place. So Kembla was really the only place that I was sort of working, mm-hmm. filling in a few different places. But uh, I've been down here, I think, 16 years now. And it's a, it's a sea change pretty well. I wasn't far away from the sea when I was in Sydney, 20 years there. But mm. uh, it's lovely down here. I've got a lot of good friends. And where I live, they'll uh, uh, carry me out of here. And uh, I, won't, yeah, I won't be leaving here before I go. We'll do another three or four podcasts before then. No, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, you're a true blue product of the Hunter Valley. Born in 1960, one of three boys for Vince and Joyce, hard-working people who were totally devoted to their boys and supportive of everything they did. Was there any racing background on either side of the family? Yeah, a little bit. My father was related. He was a second cousin to the Snowden clan, mm. and my mother was um, second cousins to the Inglebrook clan. So mm. I had um, racing sort of a little bit distance in my blood. We weren't sort of close or anything, but that's about as close as it got. Mm. And in the, the country when you're young, you're like I've two brothers, one older, one younger, and I followed my older brother pretty well into every sport that he played. And mm. if you um, didn't play sport, you got the um, size 10 of the local constable <laughs> um, up your backside. <laughs> so um, I think it was a good thing to play sport, and mm. I've pretty well got trophies for every every um, sport that we played. And my older brother was a very good boxer. He was on the short list to go to the Olympics and mm. um, obtained bowel cancer. And that um, you know, not, he was just a very good sportsman. Really sad to mm. see what happened to him. And uh, but you keep getting up and keep going. And he's a champion guy too. Mm. He's seven years older than you. Greg is six years younger. I believe your education started at the convent, but for some reason, Wayne, you didn't get on with the nuns. They probably didn't appreciate that bizarre sense of humour. Now, reading between the lines, you had far too much to say about far too many subjects. You weren't there. You weren't a classmate, were you? It sounds like you know a bit too much about me. No, I, I kept running away from school. I couldn't stand it, and I wanted to get out and see the other kids out playing football or whatever, and I'd have too much to say, so the nuns used to like to give me the cane, and I said, I'm not going back there to be copping this all the time, so <laughs> my mother said, you need some education, so I switched schools and I was all right from there. Yeah, you went to Musselbrook High, where sport quickly became your favourite subject. Now, at the but risk not- of embarrassing you, Wayne Harris, I'm going to tell our listeners that you were adept at the following sports, rugby league, <laughs> swimming, cycling, Basketball, tennis, cricket, and boxing. Are these reports accurate? Yes, that's true. And I won trophies for most of them. And I couldn't run very fast, John, so I had to learn to fight. So the boxing <laughs> came in handy. And as I said, I followed my brother in, and um, we were both Golden Glove champions. And uh, yeah. he, he got in my corner. And he, I remember the night that I won the first Golden Gloves, he said, You're a little bit behind. You've got to go for it, boy. And I sat rather bloke on his pants, and yeah, if I didn't have him in the corner, I don't know what I won that night. Yeah, you only had a handful of fights. You very wisely uh, quit that particular pursuit. But in the short time you were there, to coin a term used by the late, great Ray Connolly, 
you did unleash some fistic fury. I threw a lot of punches. A lot, a lot of them probably didn't hurt. I just uh, I thought, well, you don't win too many by knockout, so you've got to get well ahead on points. And I kept. I must say, when I was boxing training, it was the fittest I've ever been. So mm. I was very, very fit back in them days, and I, I did extra yards. I think anything I did in life, I went that extra yard to try to, to you know, I think you've got to be up there with the top guys. You've got to work harder and, 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 and you know, more luck you have, the better you are. Yeah. One of my references in researching this podcast is a wonderful Wayne Harris biography called Riding on Courage, skillfully written by Peter Fenton and released in the year 2000. Peter talks of your introduction to stable life at the Pat Farrell stables in Musselbrook. He says you rode your push bike to the stables and you'd sometimes pull a switch from a gum tree and use it as a pretend jockey's whip. I did that. It kept me warm and it kept me interested <laughs> to get there. And I think it helped me a lot too because you can't actually get on a horse and, and, and try the whip out to that extent. So the old bike didn't complain too much. Broke a few <laughs> twigs along the way. But I, I think it did help me. It's just like a lot of the guys went to the stable and they learned to, to use the whip sitting on a chaff bag. I did that as well, but I found mm. that uh, – you could let the, the, your horse, the bike, run around a bit. You could straighten him up and give him a backhander and off he'd go. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Pat Farrell finally offered you an apprenticeship, you left school early and you started that apprenticeship in January of 1976 at 15 years of age. Now, you tell me Pat was a tough boss and he didn't offer praise too freely. No, you couldn't get it freely. You couldn't pay for it. I pay for it. You probably would have. But, <laughs> but um, one thing I tell about Pat: if you you were there and you worked hard, he'd put you on the horses. He was very loyal to his apprentices, and um, well, he was getting pretty mileage out of me, I guess too. I think I rode a winner at my thirteenth ride. Mm-hmm. They made me ride extra um, trials because they thought at the time I was I mightn't have been strong enough. I think I rode thirteen trials, where in the old days it was ten. Yeah. But um, I got home on a couple that I don't think they expected me to get home on, so everyone took a bit of notice and next when I was off and flying. Mm. Well, by your own admission, you couldn't ride at all when you first entered the stable and you got all of your early education on a feisty little stable pony who sorted you right out in those early days. If you could ride, Pat, I used to say, can I put a saddle on him? He said, you ride him, get confident on him. You know, he had a lot of falls and he, he used to know. I used to ride him home of the daytime and as soon as you turned to come home, he'd just bolt. <laughs> he had hard mouth mm. and his name was Pony. They never even uh, thought to give him another name. But mm. if you learned to ride on him bareback, you're, you're off and next minute you're riding track work. So he taught me a lot, that horse. Mm. You fondly remember the tuition you received in those early days from former champion jockey Hilton Cope, who'd quit the saddle and was running his own spelling and pre-training farm just up the road at Aberdeen. You tell me Hilton was your first real teacher. He was. Uh, as you said, he'd retired, gone up to the area. He had, he had a couple of horses with Pat, and that's how I sort of got to know him. And mm-hmm. we were always taking horses up to his property to spell. And, and once I started riding, he took a good interest in me. And he kicked me up the backside if he saw something I didn't like, and mm-hmm. he would sort of, 
give you a little bit of a pat on the back if you thought you're doing something right, which was good, which you never got off Pat. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you got too much praise off Pat for anything, but um, having Hilton there was a dead set godsend to me. And I'm just a bit done. He was one of the first to congratulate me after I'd won the Melbourne Cup, sent me a lovely text, and I'm, I'm just sorry I never kept in touch with him more, but I sort of drifted away from a lot of um, Pat's uh, close close people. I got disappointed with a few things there, and um I could have went to any of the trainers in Sydney and Pat taught me into staying there at Musselbrook and mm. promised me he wouldn't take his share of my money, but uh, you learn not to believe every year in racing. It was a hell of a day when the moment arrived for your first race ride. It was on your home track. Your horse was Duke of West Point for the boss, a horse you knew well because you'd ridden him a lot in track work. All the family were there and you couldn't wait to get cracking. What happened in the race? didn't win. <laughs> he no. was a one-pacer, John. He wasn't very fast, but he was a safe ride, and that's what you put on. If you haven't got a, a certain winner to steer around your first ride, you, you put on a couple of safe rides that get you around. I rode him every morning. He's a lovely old horse, and uh, the race was just far too short for him on the day. I think I had two rides that day, and they both run, I think they both run fifth or sixth. Yeah. Then um, he, um, he ended up giving me thrills a little bit later on. The riding fees surprised you, though, didn't they? I think you got $40. That was it. I don't think you got paid for barrier trials back in them days. So mm. apprentices were very, um, very uh, hard sought done after by. for yeah. trials, and they were hard done by. Mm. Well, Pat gave you a number of rides over the next few weeks. Your confidence was mounting, and I think you were having your thirteenth race ride when you got on old Duke of West Point again on Melbourne Cup Day, nineteen seventy-six. That's the day of the big storm in Melbourne when Vanderham won the cup on an absolute bog. Duke of West Point bolted in. He he did. Um, he had no weight in his back or very light weight with my claim and whatever. And I just went to the front on him and uh, he hit. Pat had four in the race on that occasion. We had a lot of horses in work and mine was the, the roughest. And uh, he'd been my first ride and then he'd, he was my first winner on yeah, Melbourne Cup Day that year. And um, two weeks later, we ran the same four horses again. He was probably the outsider again and got up and beat them again. Just got yeah. to the front and made yeah. every post a winner. You had a meteoric rise as an apprentice. Pat kept you on country and provincial tracks exclusively and your 60th winner came up very quickly, eliminating your outside claim. It was time to come to town. And your first city winner was a horse called Arctic Man at Randwick, I think, for a trainer called Colin Gray. I'm look, I look at the photo every morning in my office, and in the photo, I won by about half length beating Ronnie Quinton and Malcolm Johnson, mm. and a couple of lengths back was Peter Cook and Peter Losh. Wow. So I look at this every day and just think, well, I'd won on the horse at Newcastle, won a... Um, a, um, a cup race there on him mm. um, just at a normal Saturday meeting. So I, I, I did win a couple on him before, and then he ended up being my first uh, city winner. Yeah. Well, on New Year's Eve 1978, you made history by becoming the first apprentice to ever win five races in a day on a metropolitan program anywhere in Australia. I can remember one of those winners, Mr Bluebeard. He was trained at Newcastle, wasn't he? I can name, I'm looking at them now. Snowing for Tommy Smith, Mr Bluebeard for Spro Freider, Fama for Sid Brown, Archibaldo for Johnny Paletti and Showcrest for Roy Hinton. So three of them were Newcastle horses that day, John. Five different trainers. Oh, different trainers, yeah. Mm. Oh, and I run second on a horse and I protested, thought I should have won it. 
um, it should have won. And Athol Mullet got a month's suspension, but they let him keep the race. Mm. I couldn't work that out. So it should have been six. Could have been six, yeah. Well, by this time, Tommy Smith was putting you on. So was Bart Cummings. And it was Bart who would give you an unheard of opportunity in the 1979 Golden Slipper. He had a very talented filly called Century Miss in the slipper. He hadn't engaged a jockey. Now, he was reluctant to use an apprentice in a Group 1 race. He had a bit of a mental block about this, and it was Bert Lilly from the Sydney Morning Herald who encouraged Bart to give you the ride. Bart said, using a kid in a Group 1 race is like declaring overweight. And Bert Lilly said, Bart, this is no ordinary kid. Yeah, he said you used him every other day of the week. He rose so many winners for you last week and any other time. But he said, but you don't put apprentices on in these type of races. He said, look, I'll tell you what, and Bert, Bert was one of my big, biggest supporters. And uh, Bart said, look, I'll go back to the owners and run it past them because he tried two or three jockeys and Peter Cook had won on her at uh, the start before. And he'd already taken a ride on, I think it was Mighty Kingdom for TJ thinking that he was going to, you know, go on and win a lot of group ones on him. And um, he went to the owners and they didn't have any any grievances in it. So, yeah, to come to, come to pass that uh, my first group one winning ride was in the Mel- – uh, group one right, winner, I should say, was in the Golden Slipper oh, for Bart. Tremendous. Now, just for old time's sake, I had a look at the replay the other day of that 79 slipper uh, and I reminded myself that you were midfield between horses to the home turn, and Wayne, you looked to be flat strap at the top of the straight, and it seemed to take a what a hundred metres or more to get going. She sort of drawed an inish barrier on that occasion. She got squeezed back a bit. But I don't think she was a filly that could ever take up much of a, a spot in a race. Mm. But um, yeah, I was back there. It wasn't by reason or anything like that, but. Uh, I just try to get a balanced, uh, do the right thing by because I yeah. think people sort of get out the square, outside the square a bit. You've got to get your horses travelling and wanting to do it for you. And yeah, it was a big effort for her to sort of um, sort of go through the field and win right on the line. Like it was a photo that took a few minutes to come down. Mm. And um, to, to think that she could come from back there and and win a slipper was um, was a good thing. They must have went along quick in the race, and things just happened for her. Yeah, she was flying on the line. She beat Dawn Command and a filly called Sweet Habit ran third. Now, you never won another golden slipper, but by golly, you were round the mark a few times. You ran third on Baglaga Miss in 1980. You ran second on Food for Love in 81. You ran second on Paris Opera in 89. And you were third on Big Dreams in 1991. Now, did any of those have any excuses on the day? Yes, food for love. I was really uh, one of the biggest disappointments I had in racing was not being able to win for George Ryder, who, you know, he, it was his baby, the Golden Slipper, and he raced a syndicate called the Arabs in them days, Australian Racing Breeding Stables, and now the Arrowfield Colours. And I would have loved to have won it for him. She was supposed to race on the Saturday before, and they called the races off, and they had them on the Monday. Mm-hmm. The dead set bog track, and she won. I, I just can't remember the name of the race now, but she won to get into the slipper. Mm-hmm. But she had to back up on the Saturday, and I was following a horse. The favourite was a horse called Crown Jester, mm-hmm. he's, and uh, I thought, well, he's the one to beat. I'm following the right horse. Well, we found out that day that he couldn't handle a wet track, and I had trouble getting around him and um, the Melbourne horse, um, 
got up, uh, made a run down outside Mick Dippman, and he just had the momentum and beat me uh, a neck. Yes, so I should have won that. And yeah, full on aces. Full on aces was awesome. Mm. He had the momentum up and uh, was able to beat me. I should have won that one, and I believe um, a couple of the others should have gone close. I think Big Dreams should have won his slipper. He had a mouth abscess and mm. had to try not to um, get on his mouth on that occasion, and I actually let mm. um, Shane die through early in the race. I, if I'd have, I should have just... You know, trusted my hand there and and um, put Shane where I wanted him. Yeah. But, uh, and a couple of the others probably should have went 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 a lot closer than they did. But you know, one yeah. one, so you can't complain. Oh no, Shane rode Tersh, by the way, in that slipper. Yeah, yeah. Now Wayne, I, just I had a... him in a good spot. I should have kept him there. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record, you rode five hundred and fifty-eight winners as an apprentice, an Australian record at the time. You won three Metropolitan Junior Premierships with tallies of 73, 56 and 89. Now, at exactly the same time, a champion young rider called Steve Cawthon was breaking records in the United States. Your careers were parallel. He was slightly in front of me, Steve, and I'd, I'd known about him and I'd seen uh, seen. Uh, you know, pace of him riding and things like that. And um, I just took a, a, an interest in him and his career from day one. And uh, getting to meet him later on in life was um, uh, was something to me. And I still rate him. I'm probably going to upset a lot of guys not putting them on top of Steve Cawthon. But uh, for a guy, he got heavy in America, went to England. He was one of the first, I think, visiting jockeys to go there and ride for Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah. But a lovely, lovely person uh, when I got to know him and um, just had a style of his own. And and uh, he's an apprentice when he won the um, the um, Triple Crown in America. Yeah. Well, people who like a good book should keep an eye out on eBay for the Steve Cawthon biography. It's called The Kid, and it is truly a great read about a remarkable jockey. Now, I wish I knew where my book was, John. I'd be reading it every day because yeah. I'm not a great reader. I'm not. Uh, I don't sort of find time to read, except for form guides, I suppose. But mm. I, um, I love that book, and um, yeah, I just put him up on a pedestal in front of everyone else. By the time you began your senior career, the weight was already becoming unstable. The slightest little period of inactivity would send it spiralling, and the toughest period of your career was looming. Negatives were sometimes balanced by pleasant surprises. Surprises like the one you got when you won the Group 1 Sires Produce Stakes at Randwick on a 200-to-1 pop called Mighty Manitou for John Hawkes. And didn't you beat a couple of nice horses, Grosvenor and Marske? That's right. They probably had a hard program coming into it and... Um, uh, I got off a hundred to one shot to ride a hundred and something one shot in the race. So, um, but uh, I always tell John Hawks when I see him, I put him on the map. But you know, he comes back with something better all the time. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, I was able to win that and uh, beat a couple of horses. I've probably just gone past their best on the day, but still a Group One win and um, one that you, you always treasure. Mm. Well, a slice of toast and a black coffee would sometimes last you all day and you were taking those rotten fluid pills. You were getting... That was the day before the race because I'd ate nothing on a race day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you were getting headaches. You were getting dehydrated. You were often listless and tired and cranky. 
somehow you kept going. Yes, I um, I had a lot of falls, as anyone knows, and uh, every time I was off, I because um, I was built like a little brick outhouse, I suppose, when I was small, I'm playing a lot of sports, but you start building up muscle, which you shouldn't have as a jockey. That's a, the lightweight jockeys haven't got to burn a, a bit of muscle on their body mm. and yeah, until you balance and you, all that type of thing that you use when you're riding. But uh, every time I was off, I put on weight and it was always hard to get it back off. So it was, wasn't a race day that I didn't go to the races having had to, well, walk with um, – plastics and jackets on the whole day before and then yeah. ride track work in the morning with with sweat gear and then go to the go to the races and um, go yeah sauna then go to the races and jump in the sauna again and oh, take a rotten fluid tablet the day before and i used to ride I used to say death warmed up and that's how i felt sometimes but mm. you know the adrenaline was a great thing that got you through and every week i'd say i can't keep doing this but then you ride a couple of winners or a good winner and you, you push yeah. on well, finally, Wayne, worrying symptoms started to appear. You had some double vision. You had headaches constantly. You had nausea and deafness in one ear. You underwent extensive testing, which revealed a tumour at the base of the brain. It was late in 1982. You were just 22 years old and your world was upside down. It was impossible to comprehend that you had gone from a fairy tale world to the depths of despair virtually overnight. Your wonderful family swung into action and instilled in you a strength you didn't know existed. Oh, you meant to say you don't you don't give up. You've got to you know, the, the life that I'd had and the things I'd achieved before that, um, I, I didn't want to lose that. It wasn't until um uh, actually stewards did me a favour for once, not that they did favour giving me a suspension, but I had plenty of them. But I was able to – I was recommended to go and see a doctor and um, I had extensive tests. And at the same time, I got kicked in the belly the week before I pushed uh, – I was riding a horse for Helen Page and to save her, I pushed her out of the way and I copped both barrels into the stomach and I had to go to the hospital. So there's two reasons I was up at the hospital getting uh, checked out. Mm. And um, they found that I'd, that I'd um, had this rotten brain tumour there. Oh, dear me. It was January of 1983 when neurosurgeons at St Vincent's Private performed seven hours of surgery. Thankfully, that tumour was benign, but your rehab was very slow and very tedious. Is it true they told you at the time you'd never ride again? Yeah, well, I'd moved to Sydney. Um, TJ kept telling me, if you don't get to Sydney, you're not going to be getting rides right. so I asked fellas. So yeah. I got to Sydney and I was doing it pretty tough and you know, a little bit lonely. And then for that to happen, I went to, and the the first surgeon, Dr. Connolly, mm. very well-respected man, but uh, very blunt bedside manners. And I said, well, once I have this operation, do you think how soon will I get back riding? He said, listen, son, if you're able to get up and walk, yeah, it's a victory. So I don't think you'll be ever riding again. So that sort of sat me on my backside, but oh, yeah. but I um uh, they cut all my balance nerves and my left eye was was uh, was a dollar each way it was going everywhere and um, <laughs> anyone that looked at me thought I had might have had brain damage or whatever but <laughs> there was a lot a lot of um, work went into getting my right there and I'd moved down to my good friend Ray Wallace who's like a second um, father to me and I moved down with Ray and he always had in his mind that uh, he'd get me back riding, which he which he actually did. I lived two doors up from uh, Max Lee's and mm-hmm. become very, very close with Max and Ray and 
they were catalysts in getting me back into the saddle and and having a successful comeback, which yeah. I was told would never happen, but I did it within 12 months of the operation, oh, luckily. You're a freak. You couldn't wait to test yourself on a horse's back, and you were very naughty in doing that on a private property near Cessnock, far away from prying eyes. You felt good, and you knew you'd ride in races again. You caused quite a stir, they tell me, the day you walked into the AJC office at Randwick and said, give me my licence back, please. <laughs> was it them words? I'm not sure. But <laughs> I, I, I was a little bit naughtier than that. I was going over and helping Ray. I used to help him in the morning with the horses and in the afternoon we'd take them for a walk. And when I got around the corner, I'd swing up on their back and and um, and ride them, which I shouldn't have been doing. And Unbeknown to me, Ray used to sneak around and he knew what I was doing. So he said, how long do you think I haven't been watching you? So we better try to get you back riding track work. And I did. And between Ray and Max, they um, they, they were they were just great to me. And, yeah, I went down and tried to get my licence back and they kept throwing red tape at me. And and uh, in the end, every doctor I went to passed me so they, they couldn't hold me back. Well, an amazing comeback was about to unfold. Wayne, we'll just clear a commitment on the podcast before we talk about that wonderful comeback. Back with you after this. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bits. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. My special guest is the remarkable Wayne Harris. Well, family, friends and the entire racing world were stunned when you returned to race riding at Gosford on September the 29th, 1983, just eight months after that operation. The media hype was amazing. The big crowd on the day were with you to a man, and it hasn't been forgotten by those who were there on the day. You had two rides, Court Regent and a filly called Silver Road. Both horses won, the crowd went berserk, and it remains one of the happiest days of your life. I knew both of them would be hard to beat, and Max had got Silver Road ready for me, and I thought she was going to – I could have ridden a week beforehand, and I just thought, no, I'll take my time and make sure my weight's okay. And um, then Ray had Court Regent, who – he'd come up first. So the last two races of the day, I remember Ray and I sat up on the hill there at Gosford and watched him, and he walked me down and pushed me in the room and said, get on with it. And <laughs> we um, – well, Court Regent was a bit of a t- – anyone that – remembers Court Regent. He left a lot of jockeys nearly in the barrier. He was a bit of a barrier rogue and he had a mind of his own and he came up in the second last race and I was able to get around on him and win. And then yeah, Silver Road was easy in the last. So 
I was off and running for a pretty successful comeback. Oh, it was amazing. And the events of the following two weeks were the beginning of one of the great sports comebacks of all time. You rode 15 winners from your first 18 rides. One day you won the first at Warwick Farm on a very smart filly called Ravage. You got somebody to drive you to nearby Bankstown Airport. You jumped on a light plane and you got back to Newcastle in time to win race six on a horse called Cobell. You were probably overdoing it, but the crowds loved it. Yeah, well, you know, I had to people who were supporting me and like Max trained Ravage and um, I had to try to get back. We, we Actually, we hired our own plane. It was Max was on the plane and Ray Wallace and uh, I can't remember who was on the plane. I think a couple of Ravage's owners maybe. We got back and, um, yeah, was able to ride, I think, ride a couple of winners on the day out of two or three rides. It was my first um, day that I'd gone to the races and not ridden a winner, but uh, I was able to get down and ride that winner in town, which was pretty important. As you said, she was a pretty smart filly mm. and uh, she whizzed around and, and made me look good. That was the Widden Stakes, by the way, Wayne. It was transferred that year from Randwick to Warwick Farm and Ravage won easily. Now, before taking ill, you'd won the 1981 Epsom on the Bathurst train Gold Circle, beating Peter Cook on a horse called Arbogast. You would have gotten a huge kick out of winning a Group 1 at Randwick for a bush trainer like Ken Morrow. Did I what? And being that guy, P. Cook, I, <laughs> he's on the favourite Arbogast. He loomed up beside me. And anyone knows Peter was the coolest. He would be the last one to go for the, for his bullets. And uh, I think we're watching each other out of the corner of our eyes. And mm-hmm. I was always told he couldn't lead all the way in a big race and win at Ramwick. Well, I'd led on Gold Circle and Peter had gone past me and horse was laying in a bit with him, which he had a bit of a habit of doing. And um, he was looking at me. I was looking at him and he went for the for the guns first. So mm. I waited another two strides and I still tell him now that I out pee cooked pee cooked. <laughs> <laughs> out pee cooked him. <laughs> Old timers will know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah, true. What a wonderful filly was Rose of Kingston in the early 1980s. She was a multiple Group 1 winner and you got her started with a win in the 1981 Champagne Stakes. Did she feel like a future derby-winning filly? Oh, she was good, but she had attitude as well, and I only got on her by accident. It might have been Peter Cook even was riding her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd gone around the slipper, and uh, whoever had gone out to ride a track work, she dumped them, and which she had a bit of a habit of doing apparently. Mm-hmm. And they rang me up and said, do you want to ride her, but you've got to come and ride you know, do a couple of gallops on her, which I did, mm-hmm. and I got to know her, and, yeah, I ended up turning around and winning the um, champagne on her. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, went to Melbourne and I think ran second in the 1,000 guineas, and I got taken off her in the, um, in the other races. And Gary Willis was riding for the Haynes family at the time, and mm-hmm. he was, um, he'd have been, um, I think, um, mowing my grass behind the back. Don't worry about that. Yeah. You were in Melbourne for the 1982 Spring Carnival, principally to ride homemade in the Victorian Oaks. Now, during that little stay, you were riding a horse called Kingston Town in most of his track work, leading up to his third Cox Plate attempt. Malcolm Johnston's surprise, surprise was suspended and you had reason to think you might just be his replacement. 
Well, I was booked to write him, PJ, because I was writing a fair bit of his work. And I'd written him in work in Sydney too because he was a bit of a clown to ride. He'd, he'd jump out from underneath you and then as you're falling off, he'd jump back and put you back on. He was he's the best horse on his feet I think I've ever been on. Mm. And uh, down in Melbourne, I was, I was writing a lot of work. I can't even remember the horses that I was really down there for. But um, PJ said, I've got some good news. You can ride the black horse in the Cox Plate. Oh. Well, I thought I'd already, thought I'd already won it. Mm. And then... Um, he was driving me back to the hotel, I think, the day after or something like that, and he said, I've got some bad news now. The owner doesn't think uh, an apprentice, can, you know, a young guy can win the Cox Plate, so he's replaced you with um, Peter Cook. So that really mm. um, sat me on my backside. So what I stole off Peter, he, he stole back off me, he always tells me. Yeah. By the way, you ran a close second on Homemade to Rom Stiletto in the Victorian Oaks. I think the winner was written by Patty Highland. She was, and I knew he's back inside me. She was a great filly, uh, Rom Stiletto, and uh, I think Homemade was about 25 to 1 for Paul Perry. Mm. She'd, I'd won a few on her, and I had him in the best pocket, probably too much for a pocket. I had him hanging over the fence and screaming out to me and he's just able to push her through and um, push me out of the road and beat me down your neck or something on the line, head or a neck. And my little bit of riding got me, I think, a six-week holiday. Oh. They were going to <laughs> they were going to put it down to foul riding, which was – and I had to get Paddy to go in and speak to his good friend, Mr. Layla, to uh, try to go a bit easy on me because uh, – yeah, I think I was going out to the firing squad. If anyway, I got yeah, I think I got a five or six week suspension over that one. But that was probably deserved. All the other ones I got probably weren't. Yeah, it all it squares up. Yeah, it does. You won your second Champagne Stakes four years later after the first one, when you won on True Version for that great trainer and great character, Angus Armanasco. I think you had another jockey to thank for that particular ride. Yeah, Mick Dittman was um, – he was riding for TJ at the time. He had to ride Speed Checker he'd won on, and TJ told him he had to ride it. You know, he, he locked him in. And so uh, Mick, from, with my luck, has got told Angus that he'd uh, – I'd suit the horse because he was a problem horse too. I think that I ran in track work the next morning that I got the ride and it took me half an hour to get him out in the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you try to stand over him, the more he's – try to stand over you. So finally got him on the track and he could obviously gallop. And um, I beat Mick in a photo. Speed check loomed up to me and um, mm. I was able to beat him ahead, I think. And I always um, laugh at Mick and tell him that I could teach him to use the whip in the left hand because that wasn't his, <laughs> his best attribute, Mick. And uh, he said, how do you think I got you on the horse? I know I can get you off him again. He said, half these other jokers will be trying to cut my throat. So mm. it was a very, very nice backhanded comment. But, uh, yeah, mm. Nick did me a favour there. About this time, your weight was all over the place and you decided to accept a short-term contract to ride in Singapore and Malaysia. You didn't stay long, but you rode a number of winners, including three Group 1s. Yes, I was very lucky over there, won the um, the Gold Cup and a few other sprint races there, but I loved Singapore itself. Malaysia, you had to have eyes in the back of your head, Ooh. but um, you got accused of a lot over there, but um, I won't go into that too much, but they... Um, I loved, I loved riding over there, met a lot of good friends and rode a st- I don't know actually how many winners I did ride over there, but I did go back and forward for 14, 15 years, which mm. is uh, – that's pretty rare for a jockey in that, that neck of the woods to be able to go back there and not be in trouble. And But uh, I, I rode for some good trainers and, and um, I loved, loved my, my time there. 
You were no sooner home when a tempting offer came up from Hong Kong. John Moore had just taken over from his father, George, who'd announced his retirement. Gary Moore had been the number one jockey, but he'd accepted a French contract, leaving a plum job up for grabs. How did it happen? Well, yeah, Gary was always going over to write for the, the Head family. Um, he, they, I think he did a bit of his apprenticeship over there under them, to be mm. truthful, and he was, he'd was he had enough of Hong Kong. He wanted to go and try a little bit different, and uh, yeah, I was asked to go over. I had to go through red tape to get my licence there too because of all my illnesses and injuries, but I got it, and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's dead said Disneyland, Hong Kong with jockeys, and mm. uh, I had a pretty good – I only did half – half a season there, the first half, because Gary had ridden mm. and John had um, taken over, winning the premiership. The ICAC um, did a big bust when I was uh, when I'd first got there and they rubbed a lot out. And John happened to win the premiership by pretty well by default his first year because mm. a, a Chinese trainer that um, George Moore had uh, always fought the premierships out with, um, mm. George had retired, and he, he had the premiership in his keeping and then they took took it off him and John won it. So... Um, yeah, John and I had had probably um, well, we clashed on quite a few occasions, as you know. I can get a bit moody and a bit, you know, speak my mind. And but John was a king of Hong Kong at the time, so that's probably the wrong person to be you know, mm. um, <laughs> coming up against. Mm. I'm going to pluck some highlights out of the air now, Wayne. You got a nice little surprise in 1990 when you rode one of David Hayes' four runners in the Blue Diamond Stakes. In winning that wonderful two-year-old race on Mahassan, you beat a couple of handy ones, Canny Lad and Triskay. Yes, they both probably weren't very unlucky in the race. Um, they had four in the race, the Hayes family, and I said, please do not put me on one of the fillies. They had two costs, two fillies. So I found out on the Wednesday I was riding riding um, Mahassan, and she was a filly. She had 52 and a half or something, oh, and yeah. I, was, I was 54, would have really... And I said, oh, you better ride it, she can win. So and I, I played tennis. I did everything, 24 hours a day, trying to get my weight down. I got there and I rode the weight, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of carnage in the race and uh, Kenny Ladd nearly fell in the race. Mm-hmm. But I was able to sort of shut the door on them and pinch a break and it, it won me the race, luckily. And mm-hmm. that was for Shay Camden, so that yeah. opened up a lot of doors for me as well. Sure did. Led you to a, a, a prize of Australian racing a little later. We'll come to that. When David Hayes elected to run some covert in the 1994 AJC size produce stakes, many thought he'd over-race at 1,400 metres. He'd won five races before running second to Dan Zero in the Golden Slipper with Shane Dye on board, but you were the go-to man for the sires. Did Shane get off him? I'll tell you something. I was about number three or maybe four to mm. go to. Shane was suspended, I think. They asked Simon Marshall originally. Simon was struggling with his weight. Um, I think um, uh, Shane Scriven. Mm. I was actually in the sauna giving um, giving Shane a, a like a, a rub down, trying to get the weight off him, and he he nearly collapsed. He said, "Wayne, I can't do this." So he went out and told them. Next minute, they come in and they said, "Well, you better be riding it. Can you make the weight?" Mm. <laughs> I ran out, and luckily I had a ride at the same weight on the same day, fifty five yeah. and a half. So I was able to do it, and and um, yeah, 
he was a horse that looked like he was going harder than he was. It's just mm. his head carriage, and but um, I got along very, very well with St. Covert, and yeah, we won on that occasion, and then we, we had a few more wins after that. You certainly did. Well, he beat Dan Zero with Blevick third in that size produce, and it was another Group One for the Musselbrook Marvel. And you were back on St. Covert in the spring for his most important win. Take us back to that Caulfield Guineas in which he defeated Marwina and Blevick. How did he settle at the mile? I'll tell you something else before that. I rode the Port Macquarie Cup winner the day before and the plane broke down up there. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember Lisa Crop and I having a little cuddle under a horse blanket trying to keep warm and they got us another plane there and we didn't get back till uh, all hours of the night back to Sydney and then I had to catch an early plane the next morning down to down there. So, um, uh, yeah, it was a good field again and I went to the front and I think I went at my own sort of speed on him and uh, got challenged in the straight, but he found something because he'd, he'd got a pretty economical run out in front. And, mm. yeah, that was his um, second group one win for me, winning the uh, Caulfield Guineas, and that's a, that's a sigh-making race too, which made it a lot more important. I oh, yeah, a very prestigious race, the Caulfield Guineas. By the way, that's a good trivia question. Name the jockey who won the Port <laughs> Macquarie Cup and the Caulfield Guineas within a space of 24 hours. The answer is Wayne Harris. And your Port I probably Macquarie... shouldn't have been up there, John. I, 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 the no. club had asked me to go up and um, be a guest, and then Gordy York rang me and said, you'll be winning the Cup of my horse. I only took the one ride. Yeah. And then to think the plane never, never, nearly got us back, and then I got down there, and then to, yeah, it's just uh, unbelievable what doors can shut, one, what one's open for you at times. Amazing. You won that Cup on a little grey horse called Town Oak, in case you've forgotten. No, I didn't forget. <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't make the weight uh, for St. Covered in the Cox Plate. He was unplaced. Alf Matthews had the ride, and then he went for a spell. Now, well, he we was are... supposed to run in the derby, John. That's, mm-hmm. I was down there to going to ride him in the derby, which he probably couldn't run the trip anyway. No. But then they had a meeting and decided to go for the, uh, for the Cox Plate. Well, that put me right out of play, and it really shook my carnival rides up as well. So you know, it's mm-hmm. funny how things turn out. Yeah. Well, he raced only five more times after that. You rode him in four of them. You won a Group 3 on him at Sandown. He ran a couple of group placings, and then he was a well-beaten 10th in the Canterbury Guineas, and St Covert was retired. Now, to your magnum opus as a jockey. That means masterpiece. Thank you. <laughs> You'd never been on Jern's back when you attended the barrier draw for the 1994 Melbourne Cup at a special function after the last race on Derby Day. Shane Dye had ridden Jeune in the McKinnon. He ran second, but the horse had over-raced. Now, what happened at that barrier draw? You were standing around having a glass of champagne, I think. That I was. Uh, I'd driven David mad. They had four in the race, I think, and the only one I could really make the weight for would have been Jern. And I'd had a couple of offers that were a bit light, and I said to David, well, you've messed my carnival around. You're going to put me on this horse in the cup. He said, look, come up the barrier draw. Shane's going to decide up there, but I think he's going to pick whatever um, uh, has drawn the best. So... Um, we, we got up there and I'm having a glass of champagne and the draws were done and Coach would drew, I think, eight and I drew nine on Jern, or Jern mm. had drew nine and Shane straight away said he was going to ride um, Coachwood for... Um, Lloyd Williams. For Lloyd and I think Mr Packer might had a, mm. a, a bit of a deal in it. And anyway, yeah, so 
I think, um, well, he rode him on the Saturday in the McKinnon and the horse had had a bad habit in England. He used to over-race and they taught him, which he could do over there, to miss the start, hold back and give the jockey some chance of being able to hold him. So when he come out here, when the barriers had opened, he just jibbed for the first stride or two. But I think Shane thought, I'll, I'll get him. I'll get him racing properly. He'll be all right. So mm-hmm. I actually rode a, a roughie in that race, sat back and followed him, and he gave him a dig out of the barriers, and he had health trouble trying to hold him mm-hmm. in that race. So, um, yeah, so I learned a bit about him that day, and I'd watched as many videos as I could of him, and yeah. and uh, I'd never been on his back. I asked David I could go and have a little can around on him on the Sunday or the Monday. He said, you just stay away and turn up race day. Did he? Did he <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, a ride. you were absolutely jogging coming around the home turn. A gap appeared and you thought, I can't waste this split. You dash through and I'll bet for one horrible second you thought, I've got to the front too early. I rode him pretty economically. I think it went around two horses in the race. And my theory has always been if you can't follow the best horse in the race, follow the best jockeys. And I followed Darren Beeman and Jimmy Cassidy, and they mm. weren't on the horses to win that year. But, gee, they rode some good, a good race, race for me. So I followed them too, and mm. probably the only two that I went around. And then there was a gap. As soon as it was coming to the turn, I could see this gap and it was starting to close. So just on straightening, I slipped him a little bit of leather, and he dashed through that gap quicker than I really intended to. And you're 350 metres from home in the Melbourne Cup and you're in front. I've never been in that position before and I don't think I ever want to be again. But no. you're, you're about that uh, clock tower that I don't think anyone knows where it is. But I waited and waited because I'd uh, been economical on him. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until I saw at the corner of my eyes the, um, the, the place getters starting to challenge. And because he'd done it so cutely, I, um, well, you've, you've done it pretty easy till now, buddy. Let's go. So I give him a couple of backhanders and. He exploded, yeah, well, and yeah, I thought it was going to be a good horse to run him down inside that last 200 metres. Wayne, it was a wonderful, magical moment, and yep. your winning ride was warmly received by everybody in the Australian racing industry. Somehow I got you on the phone between your arrival back at the hotel and your departure for the celebration party, and I can remember asking you what you had planned for the night and I've never forgotten your reply. You said, what have I got planned? I'm going out to get smashed. (laughs) That's what you told me. I think I drank myself sober. I just made sure everyone had a drink in their hand, and uh, I enjoyed the night, really enjoyed the night. Not as much as the day, but you can uh, recollect what you've gone through, and, you know, it's not... Too many people can go to their end of their day and say, what was your best ride? And to say the Melbourne Cup ride was, you know, yeah. by accident or by plan, whatever. So I, I, I knew what the horse was like and wanting to ride him the way I did was was how I wanted to ride him, but it was all by accident as well. Mm. So um, anyway, it's, it's in history now. A few days later, you were thrilled to receive a call from David Hayes to tell you that Jern had received an invitation to run in the Japan Cup. You were there to ride him. Nothing went right in the race and nothing went right when you boarded the plane to return home. What a lot of people didn't know that I'd had a hemorrhoid operation that le- week leading up to finding out we're going to Japan and oh. David said, you, you, you better be 100%. Come on, get on that plane and get over and going to win the Japan Cup. So mm. went over. We had a terrific trip. Uh, the horse actually threw me 
uh, I think it was two mornings before the cuppy, they've got crows over there that are the size of a Peddingham Concord plane. And <laughs> <laughs> down and they they spooked him and he, he just drove me. Mm. So I'd um I had a sciatic problem up leading up to the to the race. But then um coming down to the post the first time, Jimmy Cassidy was on rough habit and we caught some pretty severe interference and uh, went under my neck and the horse sort of stumbled badly and I think it's cost him if not winning definitely run the place but I hit the saddle pretty hard and um, through the night I felt unwell then on the way to the airport I'd started to uh, have a hemorrhage probably not nice to talk about but all I wanted to do was um, get on the plane and uh, my ex-wife Linda she was she was really worried and we got on the plane and I'd lost a hell of a lot of blood and I probably saved my life, but I collapsed mm. going to the bathroom when they were telling me to sit down or taxiing out, and I, I just collapsed and nearly passed out, and they called for if there was any doctors on the plane. Lucky there was two of them, and they said, get him off, get him to hospital straight away. So, yeah, I had a story to tell about um, that that as well, I guess. Mm. Amazing. God, you're tough. Wayne, a brief mention of Jeanne's amazing win first up the following autumn in the CF4 stakes at Sandown. He came from near last in a field of 12 to absolutely swamp Hurricane Sky and Scalacci in 1 minute 21.1, for God's sake, for 1,400 metres. Surely that was his best run for you. My word. Everyone thinks I'd have a Melbourne Cup photo on my um, home, my um, screensaver of my phone and my laptop and whatever I've got, but I've got the photo of him winning the All-Stakes. I truly think mm. that nothing would have beat him that day. The more you could get him to relax early in the race, the better sprint he had at the end of it. And that day I was just sitting back and I give him a dig after we'd straight and he just give good horses a, a cold. He, yeah. And that day, he was a different horse if there was a little bit of uh, moisture around Johnny. He had very bad joints. Mm. And if there was a little drop of rain around anywhere, uh, or they watered the track, it was to his advantage by mm. a long way. Just for your records, mate, you'd ride him on 12 more occasions for wins in the Group 1 Queen Elizabeth at Randwick and the Craig Lee Stakes in Melbourne. But you ran second in a Futurity, you ran second in an Australian Cup, second in a Randvet, and second in a BMW. You know what? Two of them he should have won. He just um, his horse that didn't help you when you were riding him. I reckon he should have won at least two of those. But mm. anyway, oh yeah, he's a great horse, yeah, and then a very good stallion later too. You You're got right. a very big kick to give Gay Waterhouse her first Group One winner in Melbourne when you won the 1995 Newmarket on that beautiful push button ride, all our mob. Uh, Gay's won a few more Group 1s in Melbourne since then. But wasn't he a magnificent little horse and a treat to ride, wasn't he? Absolute gentleman. But he had his mornings that he had a headache or a hangover or whatever you want to call it. If he, mm. he didn't want to go out and work, he'd let you know. He'd take half an hour to go, go out on the track and you give him a little dig or something, he'd turn around and give you a glare in the eye like, I'm not feeling too good this morning, let me go. But mm. he uh, he was some sort of horse and uh, you just knew he was going to go out there. Every time you rode him, he was going to give you 100%. And, yeah, that was Gay's first group one in Melbourne. One of your best ever rides, in my opinion, was on Monopolise for Graham Begg in the 1995 Hong Kong Bowl. You had to go back to near last and it was obvious you were going to need plenty of luck in the run home. You were able to maintain his momentum as he found gap after gap in the straight 
and then he took off. And as you were pulling up, I'll bet you said under your breath, Wayney boy, that was one of your best. And I was very happy. Um, I'd spent a lot of time helping Graham get that horse ready, flying back and forth to Melbourne, and uh, I think he got in by accident. I think a horse pulled out, and it's just horses for courses, I guess. If you ran that field back here in Australia, he mightn't have won it, but he was just a tough horse. Uh, he went over there. He, he just um, he thrived. And I even said to Graham, "I have to give this horse a little bit more work. He's, he's jumping out of his skin." So we give him a little bit more work over there. Graham had had him just superly trained, trained up to the mark there. But he'd done so well. And Neville Nevillebeg was training over there at the time. And he had one of the favourites in the race. And uh, we had dinner a night or two before that. And he said, "Son, when on Sunday, he said, just jump out and follow my horse on the one to beat." And um, I said to Graham, well, it's drawn 14, I'll draw 13. I don't know mm. if I want to be fine. Mm. Anyway, uh, it, it ended up getting caught three deep the trip, and I just knew straight away after I'd gone a full on half, no way I'm going to win the race uh, getting out and following that. So I went back over to the inside and rode him for luck, and and he was just super on that day. And I mm. uh, was just so proud to win for the then family and, and for myself mainly because I'd ridden Hong Kong years before that and things mm. didn't end up uh, too happy there. I had a fall and broke my hip and couldn't finish my contract and then when I wanted to go back, uh, sort of off the – I was off the um, off the list type of thing, but to go back there after winning that, I was able to um, get uh, a short-time contract there again before I, um, before I had to retire. Mm. Wayne, quick recollections of the half season you spent in Ireland with Kevin Prendergast. Pretty late yep. in your career. I know you loved it. Higher weight scale, plenty of winners and a few nice horses to ride. True. I got it was by accident too, having one on Mahassan for Shake Shake Hamdan, a job come up. Uh, there's an Irish jockey riding for Kevin Prendergast who got killed in a car accident. Yeah. And um, you know. Uh, for some reason, they got in touch with me and said, interested in going over, and I'd always wanted to go to Europe and try myself at a, you know, not always a heavier weight scale, but more often a heavier weight scale. And uh, uh, things could be changed late over there. Like my boss used to say to me, these horses have got no chance today. You don't want to go to this tip track, as he used to call it. So he'd give me a day off and you could get replacement jockeys. And it was a great lifestyle, and mm. I loved my time there. And um I was just a bit disappointed. There was a track there called Phoenix Park, mm. and there's a race called the Cartier Million. I run second in that beating a neck on a horse owned by the Throsbys, mm. and um, that was. You know, I was listening to instructions too closely there. They said she'd had a bit of a habit of missing start and things like that. So I dug her out of the barrier, and she's running fifth, turning for home, and it was a um, about a 600 metre home straight, and horses in front of me kept dropping off. I hit the front probably 250 from home. He didn't want to be there then. And the legend of Violin, Mick Kinane, was following me, and he must have been laughing when he picked me off near the post. But mm. I would have loved to have won that race there. But uh, yeah. rode some nice horses there, though. Mate, I'll just whiz through a couple of other little highlights late in your career. You rode a couple of brilliant country-trained sprinters. Uh, you won six races on Lightning Bend for Gerald Flick, including the Group 1 William Reed and you won five races on Can Grande, including three Group 2s and a Group 3 for Cliff Bashford. They were two great country-trained sprinters. You won a couple of Magic Millions on Zephyrus and Winger Charger for Max Lees and Tony Vassell, respectively. Your record is quite remarkable, considering all the stops and starts you had to tolerate. 
Apart from your Sky Thoroughbred Central work, you've also dabbled in jockey management. You've had two Premiership winning apprentices in Tom Sherry and Robbie Dolan. You've looked after Alan Robinson. You've looked after Travis Wolfgram, Kobe Jennings and Chris O'Brien. But you've now retired from that field. Yeah, John, it's just too hard on me. And uh, I mainly kept at it because Mark Newnham asked me to look after his boys, Robbie and, and Tommy, and they're both lovely lads. And, you know, Mark, what Mark couldn't teach them, you know, and then I suppose I prettied them up and just taught them things that I wanted to teach them. And, um, and I think they both learned quite a lot through it. We were able to win Prentice's premiers. Well, Robbie won too. And, um, and Tommy struggles with his weight a little bit, but he, he, um, so much talent them two boys have got. But, yeah, I mainly kept it going because of that. But when I finished up with Tommy recently, my health wasn't that great. And uh, we both needed a bit of a change, I think, and um, still keep in touch. But I don't I don't think I'll be taking it on again. It just was too hard on my health. Hmm. Um, as I say, I don't sleep and everything else that goes with it. But, you know, hmm. anyway, you keep, keep trying, haven't you? Well, that's absolutely. That's the creed by which you've lived for a long, long time. Your I doctors on my mind now, so off we go. Yeah, your doctors advise you to start thinking about retirement when you started to experience a touch of immobility in one leg, and it was with very heavy heart when you set the date for your swan song at Rose Hill in early nineteen ninety-seven. You had two rides. The first was quick and handsome for Peter Staunton in an early race, and you won. You won. On your final day, you rode one for Neville late, I think, in the last race, Space Prince, and you got beaten a whisker, almost a double. I think I found a way to ride that horse. I was able to help them on my last day. I didn't plan that that was my last day. I'd had a fall a few weeks before that at, at Hawkesbury. I went up to do a friend of mine a favour, um, ride a horse up there for them and I got absolutely planted mm. and my back was just so bad. But I noticed around that time I started to trip with my left leg and stumble a couple of times and I knew something wasn't right, but it didn't seem to affect me when I was on the horse. And after I'd had that fall, I went back to my specialist and he said, don't get on another horse. You become crippled, you, you know, you've got to promise me. So I didn't tell him. That was on a, I think on the Thursday. I didn't tell him I had two rides on the Saturday. And uh, quick and handsome one for Peter Staunton. And I've got a bit of lip, as you say, for Neville, the late Neville late on um, Space Prince. So mm. I just knew it was a day to just pull the pin and um, and um, that, that was enough. But I didn't learn till after that um, when I had my second brain tumour after I'd won the Melbourne Cup, I um, got meningitis and different things. And they said, how have you been riding? You've had no balance down your left side. We've cut all your balance nerves and your your right-hand side has just compensated and took over from your left, which was just unbelievable in itself to think that I could be still riding under them circumstances, to be truthful. I wish they'd asked me at the time. I would have given them the obvious answer. You're a freak. (laughs) Well, quite (laughs) often they say, you know, moving, raining movie stars and you're always looking for... um, Maybe Margot Robbie or back in the day, Marilyn Monroe. I always seem to get Lassie. Lovely dog she was. <laughs> but it wasn't what I was praying for, John. No. Well, you and Linda experience the joy of parenthood. You've got a daughter, Amy, a son, Matthew, both in their early 30s, can you believe? 
Yes, and sadly, um, you know, it's drifted a different way, which a lot of people do, but um, wishing them all the best. And um, I think my son's had two children now and I hope he's a good father, or better than I am, hopefully. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I did my best for him as long as I could. And, you know, we, you, everyone sort of goes their different directions, I guess, at times. Mm. But, uh, yeah, yeah the two lovely children. And Wayne, special mention of your partner, Tracy, who closely monitors your health issues. She makes sure you do what the doctors tell you to do. She's a great lady. Look, I've got to be lucky. When I was, I nearly died after the second brain tumour and um, and uh, getting meningitis. So I was uh, off tap at least twice, they said. And Linda, back in them days, my ex and my brother, Greg, sat by my side and sort of got me through that. But in latter years, now Tracy and I are together, she's, um, she's a great um, support for me. We fight like everyone else, and mm. she's about my size, so I'd probably get away with it. But um, <laughs> she, she's uh, she's she's been great. She worked hard herself, but she's um, she's a wonderful person and uh, looked after me so so well. Owners, trainers, and fellow jockeys from your era emphatically rate you as one of the most brilliant riders of your generation. The general consensus has always been that had you been capable of riding two or three kilos lighter, your achievements would have matched those of some of the all-time greats. Wouldn't like to have thought I'd gone to the races and felt healthy sometimes. John used to go there so dehydrated and, you know, and you had to think about what was going on and try to still perform at their best. And to get some of the praise that I got when I did retire from you know, Darren Beam and the likes, you know, saying... Um, you know, what a great jockey I was and how proud they were to ride against me. But I think the best rap I got was from Johnny Hawks, surprisingly. He said there's jockeys and there's horsemen. There's not too many of the both, but Wayne Harris is both. So, you know, I stick my chest out when I, when I remember that. And I concur wholeheartedly, Wayne. It's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast for the first time in five years. Thanks for your time. It's been a lovely trip down memory lane on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Keep punching, my boy. Uh, you're an out-and-out marvel. Thanks, Johnny. You're champion yourself. Time-honoured Carrington Stakes will be 94 years old when the 2024 edition is run at Randwick on January 27. The race is named after Charles Carrington, who in the late 19th century served five years as the 16th Governor of New South Wales. The inaugural winner of the Carrington in 1930 was Pavilion, ridden by the legendary Morris McCartan, who in later years would become one of Australia's most successful trainers. Easily the most notable Carrington winner is the freakish Burnborough, who won the six furlong sprint in 1945, only one week after winning the Villiers at a mile. His amazing versatility was again on display the following year when he won the Doombin 10,000 and the Doombin Cup seven days apart. One wonderful old sprinter to make the race his own in the 1980s was At Sea, who won three Carringtons for Theo Green. 
Another high-profile winner of the sprint was Snippets in 1988. This brilliant horse had been the inaugural winner of the Magic Millions a year earlier and later in his career added three Group 1s to his CV. He later became a highly regarded sire and sire of brood mares. Snippets died at 17 years of age in 2002. When the Carrington Stakes comes around, you know there's a new year of Sydney racing underway. Saturday, January 27th for the Carrington Stakes.